Hi, I'm Amber. Welcome to the Lone Star Keto Podcast. And today I have a special guest, Michelle Hearn. She is a registered dietitian and one of my friends. Welcome, Michelle. Hey, Amber. Thank you so much for having me on. Absolutely. I can't wait to to have a little chat with you. It's been a while. (laughs) Okay. So first of all, let's kind of get some of your background, uh, like your education background, and we'll, we'll save the health stuff for later. Sure, sure. So just as far as education goes, you know, I am a registered and licensed dietitian. Um, I've been practicing for um, 11 years. I became a dietitian in 2009. I'm also um, a former marathon runner, run 12 marathons, qualified for Boston uh, 12 times, and I'm about to embark on my first ultra marathon. So a six hour race, which I'm really excited about. And yeah, you know, I recently, I'm sure we'll talk more about this, but I actually recently left the healthcare field, you know, that so much disconnect between what was happening and what I felt like I was having to prescribe and kind of how I saw my, my patient's health declining that I made the decision to, um, to leave. So yeah, that's, that's kind of, <laughs> it's a real quick and dirty, but that's about where I am today as far as education goes. Yeah. Well, let's get into that because this is what I find fascinating. And, I, and I've talked to others in the health perspective profession field like nurses and and other dietitians who who really are struggling with watching their patients decline and not really be able to do anything or if they did they would risk losing their jobs because there's a certain scope of practice and what you're kind of limited to do but you're having to witness this what what happened with you Yeah. So it becomes, it becomes pretty heartbreaking. You know, you go into dietetics thinking like, look, I'm going to learn about nutrition. I'm going to learn how to help people. And unfortunately, you know, we have these um, standard guidelines. These are the guidelines that started in the seventies. And there's a whole backstory um, about that. You know, I'm coming out with a book. (laughs) I've got a whole chapter on that. That's pretty bizarre how that that came to be. But, you know, you think like, I'm going to see these patients and I'm going to have time to discuss the nutrition principles and help them. And what I saw was, you know, my patients will take the example of diabetics, um, really poor health, you know, these people with diseases caused from carbohydrates and as dietitians were taught, Hey, they just need to eat those healthy whole grains and those fruits and vegetables, and they need less fat. And we're just going to consistently dose them with insulin. And I saw profoundly sad things. People, if you haven't been in a hospital setting, you know, I'm not just seeing people that, Oh, you're 10, 20, you know, 50 pounds overweight. We're seeing wounds down to the bone. We're seeing rotting teeth. We're seeing people with their legs amputated. We're seeing people that lose their sight. Uh, Really, really scary things. And day after day, you go in and I started to feel helpless because I, what I was trying to teach people did not match, um, was not helping them get better. And when I researched and discovered how powerful, you know, the lower carbohydrate dietary approach was, you know, I, especially as a younger dietitian, you know, I tried to like, Hey, could we do this? Could we try this? And our Academy guidelines won't let us do that. Like you can risk losing your license. Um, and then I would see people go to, um, not dietitians, but to health coaches and get better. (laughs) And there was this huge underlying fear that if we reduced carbohydrates and we increased fat, specifically animal fats, that you would have heart disease. And, you know, I did a bunch of research on that. And I was like, you know what, actually in the absence of high blood sugar, there is zero evidence that you're going to have any type of problem with your heart. But, you know, when I worked in the hospital, people on a heart healthy diet could order, I had a guy order 140 grams of carbohydrates at a single meal and 70 grams of sugar, but it was fine because it was low fat and low salt. 
And, you know, as a dietitian, it really started to like to hurt, hurt my heart. And to, um, I, I felt like I was contributing to a flawed system and to a dysfunctional system. And, you know, a lot of dietitians and nurses that I've talked to, you know, we want to stay in it because initially you think like, okay, can I heal from the inside? Can I start to, you know, I'm going to be in direct contact with people, but unfortunately, especially in acute care, I mean, so many of my patients are so sick. I mean, they may not even be able to, they may be out of it. So they can't hear you. They may, um, you know, have severe dementia. And you're also put in a situation where I have, let's say I get there at a day, I've got 20 patients. I have four tube feeding orders, um, four insurance reimbursement. I'm going to have to chart 30 to 40 minutes on somebody. I don't have time. The actual patient that might be able to hear me, I, you know, you look at your watch and you know, you don't have time. I, I had a situation in a previous job where I actually clocked out and stayed to see more patients because I, you know, they won't let you get overtime or it varies per hospital. And I know with COVID, I'm sure situations are different, but when I was practicing, you know, the hospitals really discourage overtime. And so you're kind of put in this really precarious situation. And so you kind of start to you know, year after year, it started to just wear away on me. And I was like, I can't keep doing this. I um, I had an opportunity to work in a psychiatric facility and I'm seeing our patients with psychiatric disorders. You know, we're feeding them the standard American diet. You know, the average carbohydrate intake of that population was between 300 and 350 grams a day. Average sugar is 38 to 42 teaspoons a day. Let me repeat that teaspoons, 42 grams. That's the equivalent of four cans of Coca-Cola a day for a patient that's struggling with bipolar disorder, major depression, schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder. And I would see things that just really started to, to hurt. Um, an example is I, I, I covered the uh, rehabilitation floor in one of my hospitals. And when I say rehabilitation, I'm not talking like a drug or alcohol, I'm talking like, oh, I had a stroke or, oh, I had a major accident. So I'm gonna be there for a few weeks to just get stronger and rehab. And before every dietitian, before you go see a patient, you'll look at your patient's medication list. What are you taking medication-wise? And I started to notice a really, in my opinion, frightening trend that my patients that were coming in with a stroke, a lot of them had statins. I had a 38-year-old guy that was on a statin, you know, to lower his LDL cholesterol. And so I just started keeping track for three months. Like how many of my patients that come in on a stroke had been on a statin? And I didn't keep, you know, names or I didn't keep, you know, I want to protect HIPAA, I want to protect their information. But at the end of three months, I took it to the, the, the medical director and said, look, 68% of people, 68% that are on a statin have had a stroke. Like this is, this is scary. And that was, I mean, I'm 37 and I'm still naive. They, they told me, I won't tell you with exact words they told me, but basically they told me when I get my medical license to come back and talk to them. And until then I need to stick to nutrition. Oh. Um, and then I was reported to my clinical director who said that that was not my job or my business. Oh. And I was put on probation <laughs> for a period wow. for not doing my job, you know? So we're really taught that we have to stay in this box. You know, uh, my job as a dietitian, when I go, I am to give you insure, I'm to give you sugar water. I'm to give you chocolate cake. I'm to give you brownies. I'm to give you whatever gives you protein and calories. I'm not to question the system. I'm not to think I'm not to step outside the box. And when people don't get better, my job is to say, man, gosh, darn it. If only you would exercise more and eat what I tell you to eat, let me continue on with my day. And, um, you know, I, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't do it anymore. I had, I had started to in 
2020, I had started early 2020, I'd started to kind of make a plan. Like, what can I do next? Cause I know I can't do this sustainably. And then COVID happened and I actually lost all my guaranteed hours. I went from, um, having 40 plus to no guaranteed hours. And I ended up getting put in our call center, um, eight to 10 hours a week where patients actually call in and order food. And so I went from seeing patients to being a call center representative. So I have a diabetic calling me, telling me they want, and once again, diabetic, we're going to give you 75 to 85 grams of carbs a day. And you can order whatever you want. You want to add a guy order two chocolate cakes and a caramel macchiato for lunch. Um, and I had people ask me like, what do you recommend? What can I have? Um, and I just, there came a point where I said, you know, I just, this, this is hurting people. I took an oath. I took a, uh, well, my, my morality is a human being, but I took an oath to do no harm. And I am absolutely certain that I'm no longer fulfilling that oath. Um, and so I decided like, yeah, I, this, the minute I can get out of this and it's hard. And I hear every single health professional that says like, look, I, you know, I have, you know, my, parents, <laughs> I don't come from a rich family. I took out a lot of student loans to become a dietitian. And I was making um, at that point per hour, more money than I ever had in my life. And so when I left the industry, I, uh, I make about 35% now <laughs> of what I did before. So, that, you know, there's a big pay cut, but, um, you know, you have, in my opinion, you know, life all- always comes down to like, you have to chase your passion and help others. And I wasn't doing either. I wasn't, uh, it was starting to affect other areas of my life, um, pretty negatively. So I was really glad to, to eventually leave. That that just so blows my mind that you're right. You take that oath, but how do you honor that oath when you know that it, what you're telling them is causing harm? I mean, but but you're you you're forced to. So to me, that is just so wackadoodle. Yeah, and you know, I don't think every single dietitian fully appreciates. A lot of them are very indoctrinated that we need these whole grains, we need these mm. fruits and vegetables. Um, and when we're really young, you know, when you're in your early twenties and maybe you're, you're lean and metabolically healthy to, to it, you're like, well, I'm fine. Why isn't everybody else fine? You know, and we, we're not taught the profound effect that those carbohydrates and those processed greens have on your, your brain, you know? So a lot of dietitians, um, they don't understand, or they, a lot of people don't believe things like carbohydrate or sugar addiction exists. Um, and like I said, there is just this consistent messaging that the, it's the patient. The patient is lazy. The patient is not eating what we tell them to. Yeah. And I've seen on other podcasts. I mean, we have data. If you go to, it's available online. You know, since the 1970s, we're eating significantly more whole grains. We're eating more fruits and vegetables, and we have decreased our intake of eggs, pork, uh, slightly beef. Beef's are relatively the same. We're eating a ton more chicken, but we've massively decreased our intake of animal fats while we've increased um, vegetable oils over 100 percent. Yeah. And I get these comments all the time when I post something, you know, talking about that. And just yesterday I got one saying, oh, well, there are people who eat uh, grains all the time and those sibyls and blah, blah. And uh, your ancestors, you know, survived on it and evolved with it and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, okay, yeah, maybe, but does that mean it's optimal? Does that mean that you're not going to have issues? Does that mean that you have issues you don't even know you have? I mean, you know, I'm sorry, but it's like, there are some things like, I think we can all agree on sugar, but why is it that 
all grain is like this, oh, we need it. We have to have it. Yeah. You know, it's really interesting. And there's, there's such a long history with grains and with, with corn, you know, and it is relatively recent that we've had so much access to grains mm -hmm. and to corn. Um, but I, you know, when they say like carbohydrates and health, like healthy whole grains, um, those are still the very bottom of the pyramid, but it really goes back to like, if you want to kind of dive into history, like it goes back to world war two, you know, in world war two, we needed food to feed our soldiers. So they, the government said, Hey, we'll offer you these subsidies. And they were like, sweet, you know? And so we had, and then all of a sudden we had a lot of, you know, leftover carbohydrates and leftover things even after the war. But even at that time, you know, back in the 1940s, we still really valued animal products, animal cheese, dairy, and fat. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you kind of fast forward, you had Ansel Keys come through and, you know, demonize meat and fat with his seven country studies. And then at the same time, you know, at, well, not the same time, but slightly later and during the, the Nixon administration, you know, he really wanted to get elected. He was, he was, um, he was, you know, there in a time when you had the Vietnam War and food prices were on the rise. So he hired a guy, you can't make up his last name, is Buzz, B-U-T-Z, Buzz, uh, the agricultural expert to say like, hey, what, how are we gonna decrease food costs? And so they offered subsidies to farmers to grow corn, like grow corn. And so they grew corn and all of a sudden corn started replacing everything. You know, we had corn and biscuits, we had corn and cereal, we had corn, corn, corn. You know, we stopped using tallow, which is the cooking fat for animals. And we replaced it with corn oils and the corn. Yep. But all of a sudden it's like, we had too much corn. It's like, oh no, what do we do with all this excess corn? And so they sent, you know, um, Mr. Butts over to Japan to check out this really cool new uh, technology. It's like, wow, look what we can do to corn. And I mean, it, people who under, have heard this story probably know it was, uh, they were turning corn into high fructose corn syrup. And, you know, that of course was so much cheaper than sugar and it just exploded. And not only did high fructose corn syrup, you know, was it cheaper, but it also extended the shelf life. And so now, you know, processed food companies just ran with that. Like, oh my goodness, you know, we have this Ansel Keys saying, don't eat fat, it'll kill you. We have this product we can put into our, you know, our processed foods. It's going to make it taste better and increase the shelf life. And then, you know, in the 1970, 1977, I believe was when they wrote the first um, nutrition guidelines that just said, hey, we got to decrease animal fat and we've got to eat these grains. And the thing is, if you've ever followed a high carbohydrate diet, I did for a very long period of my life. Um, they're, they keep you coming back. They keep you eating more. You're riding that blood sugar roller coaster. And mm -hmm. it's interesting though, because we now have the data, right? That obesity is through the roof. Diabetes is through the roof. Um, I think it's even potentially more frightening that depression, you know, depression is the number one cause of disability worldwide. We're seeing, um, uh, diseases of despair and that is, um, alcohol addiction, opiate addiction. Mm -hmm. Those are through the roof suicide. Mm -hmm. So it's like, something is not good here, you know, we, and then we have, the, we have people who are struggling with diabetes, that type two diabetes for decades. And now we have clinical trials that say, you know what, in two weeks, two weeks, not two years, not two months, not mm -hmm. two decades, in two weeks, I can resensitize your cells to insulin with a um, low carbohydrate diet. In eight days, I can get you off 150 um, units of insulin, less than 10 days, I can completely transform but then we have the mainstream medical that is just like, nope, nope. But it really comes down to, like you said, it comes down to you have to follow the money. You know, my, um, 
the Academy of Nutrition, which used to be when I was young, when I was a new dietitian, it was called the American Dietetics Association. And our three biggest sponsors were Coca-Cola, Hershey, and PepsiCo. Mm -hmm. Um, Since then, Coca-Cola is no longer a sponsor, but Pepsi is. Pepsi, Frito-Lay, Quaker, General Mills. I actually got an email today from one of our sponsors asking me if I'm interested in a brochure on how good soy protein is for you. <laughs> so, you know, you really have to, you know, I posted on my Instagram um, a couple of days ago about the tube feeding formulas. You know, if somebody is in a traumatic mm-hmm. car accident, you know, if your loved one's in a car accident and they have to be fed intravenously, you know, through a tube, I think most people would assume that that's highly, highly dense, good nutrition, mm-hmm. where if you look at the ingredients, you know, corn syrup, maltodextrin, soy protein, and canola oil. <laughs> so, you know, but the truth is in what we're facing, and this is, you know, one of my goals to advocate against the system is I I can only make money if I keep you sick. If I manage your disease, if you're well, I'm out of customer. If I kill you, (laughs) you're out of customer. So I really kind of have to keep you like right here. And we've done a very good job of that. You know, we've done a great job of keeping people coming back, you know, just hanging on with a really, really poor quality of life. That is so incredibly sad to me, but that's what we're seeing. And it's funny you brought up the feeding too, because that was one of the questions, because I have a real issue with like the IVs and the feeding tube, what, what they're fed. Now, I actually checked my mother's, uh, uh, you know, tube that the, the fluid, blah, totally lost my train of thought there. Um, and it didn't have any sugar in it, but I hear that some do. Is that true? Some do, some don't. Is it, is she on a tube feeding formula or is it like a, no, it was just when she was in the hospital and, and she was having a procedure done. So, you know, she just had the IV bag. No. Yeah. The IV mostly like if you're just in there getting electrolytes, then, um, it's normally just like a sodium potassium, you know, just, just the electrolytes. If you, there's two different, um, tube feedings you can get. Like if you, uh, you know, they always want people, if you can eat first, that's number one. If you can't eat, then you're going to get the tube through your nose. If that, if they can't access that, like maybe you have some type of a small bowel obstruction, then they will feed you directly into your veins. It's called a parenteral nutrition. And that mm. that's just straight glucose, straight sugar. Okay. It's yeah. And then, so yeah, so that would be that. And they might do that in certain circumstances, but most of the time, if you're just having a procedure, it will just be electrolytes for sure. Okay. Well, that, that's good to know, but I, I double checked on that. And then as <laughs> soon as she came out of the procedure before she could leave, they wanted her to eat something. And what did they give her? What do you think? Oh, I'm sure juice, graham crackers. Yes. And I brought a baggie of bacon and I was like, no, no, no bacon. We're having bacon. <laughs> and they were like, okay. And what was really funny is the nurse that was coming in and out, he was also really big into keto. And okay. I, I overheard him talking to somebody and he's just all passionate about it. And I was like, I need to talk to him because you don't hear that very often from a nurse. Yeah, there are so that was very interesting. Yeah. It is super interesting. And it's, It's so I get, I used to get really excited every once in a while, you'd get someone who was just really interested or really into it, you know, another healthcare professional, but often they kind of feel, you know, like they can't, they can't do a whole lot. You know, most of our patient population, it used to blow my mind, you know, these people that are so obese that are massively obese yet. They're like, I'm hungry. They can't actually access their Mm -hmm. own body fat. And I mean, that's kind of the, I, I hate to use this term, but potentially like if you're, if you're just trying to make money, like you don't care about people's health at all. 
I mean, it's kind of a brilliant system what processed foods have done because they, once you eat, you know, carbohydrates, let's say you eat a big thing of graham crackers, you get a blood sugar rise, insulin comes in, insulin suppresses your body's ability to use your own body fat. You can, you can have, you know, tons, you can be massively mm -hmm. obese, yet you can't access it when you're eating all those carbohydrates. And so, but what happens, not only can you not access your own body fat, your blood sugar decreases. So even though, you know, maybe you had a ton of calories, maybe you just ate a bunch of pancakes or whatever, but you're going to feel like you need to eat more and see, this is the yep. cycle of keeping people sick. Yeah. Uh, that is so infuriating because like, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Can't and see once it. you understand it, you know, it just, it completely makes sense now. And, sure. and I, I, when I see things now, I'm just like, Oh God, Oh God. And speaking of which something I wanted you to kind of help with, um, sure. there is a difference between type one diabetics and type two. Sure. Can you kind of explain real briefly what the difference is? And then I'm going to ask you a question. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, so, you know, they used to call type one diabetics or type one diabetes. They used to call it, um, uh, youth onset or you know, child onset. And they used to call type two, like adult onset, because you were normally like, if you were going to have type one diabetes, it happened when you were relatively young. And then of course, type two happened when you were much older <laughs> now. And I'll get into that in a second. That's not always the case, but type one is completely different than type two type one. Uh, what happens is basically where you have your pancreas. So the islet cells of your pancreas, the cells that actually release insulin are destroyed. It's basically considered like an autoimmune um, and, and to no fault of your own. You know, my, my nephew, um, my second oldest sister's kiddo, he was four when he was diagnosed with type one diabetes. So it's not because of anything you did or ate or whatever. It's just something happened to where you no longer produce any insulin. And until we have, I mean, there's some really cool clinical trials going on with people trying to do pancreas transplants, but we don't have a good cure for type one. And so as of now, it's not reversible. That would probably be mm -hmm. a really important thing that people, mm -hmm. if you're not familiar with it, it is not something like type two. So type two, on the other hand, is very different. Type two is something that happens over time. You know, when you, if you consume carbohydrates to the point where, um, you know, your, your body basically no longer can, can keep up, you know, I use the pancreas. You want to think of like, the pancreas is like on this treadmill and you're constantly eating carbs and it's constantly trying to like stay up. And after a while, it's just like, I can't do it, Blah. you know? And so then your body starts to become resistant to that, that insulin, either the pancreas isn't cranking out insulin, or sometimes the pancreas is still cranking out insulin and your cells are just no longer taking in the insulin. I like to use in type two diabetes. I like to use the analogy of, you want to think of it like, um, a hoarder's house, right? If you've ever watched that show hoarders, there's, mm -hmm. there's trash everywhere. There's, you know, there's stuff everywhere. There is no room to put anything. Your cells can know your cells are saturated with fuel. So you can no longer get any of that glucose into your cells. So, and that's also very dangerous. Like you really want, the body wants to keep your blood glucose levels stable. That's why it has incredible feedback mechanisms. That's why you have insulin from the pancreas that brings it down. Because if you consistently have high blood glucose, it shifts the pH of your blood. Why is that significant? When the blood is, uh, when the pH of your blood is shifted, you're going to have all kinds of negative things happen. That's why you get the neuropathy. That's why you get the um, mm. you know, potential blindness. That's why you, you know, you may have to have an amputation. That's why you're going to have kidney failure. Your body really, really wants to keep that blood pH level, right? So, but the great thing about type two diabetes is just like the hoarder's house, you know, what do you do? Like if, if you watch the shows, what do they do? They get some of that stuff out of there. <laughs> it is, it is completely reversible. And I've seen it happen, you know, dozens of times, you know, but how do you do that? 
okay, first of all, if carbohydrates are causing the problem, you got to stop, you know, stop. Here's the hoarder's house with the trash. Stop putting in more trash and work and get rid of it, you know, move a little bit, you know, get, get some, and it doesn't have to be, you know, a lot, but when I've seen people just, okay, I'm going to start walking and I'm going to follow a low carbohydrate diet. Boom. You have, you've basically got the formula for reversing type two diabetes. So, um, and type two diabetes can happen. I've honestly, I've seen it as young as eight. I've seen it in a child who was eight years old. Um, and it can happen certainly older in life. Um, but we are seeing more type one diabetes uh, later in life, people in their twenties and even thirties being diagnosed with type one diabetes. So, um, there's some, you know, type of autoimmune component in that, but it's still generally for most people, you're going to see it, you know, earlier in life. Okay. The reason why I asked you that is, okay, we know that type one and type two are different type one. You can't reverse basically the organ that produces a insulin is shot. It's dead. It's gone. So you can't really do, do much for that. Okay. But you still need to have the glucose dealt with in the blood and you don't have anything to help with that. So does it really make sense to add in more of what you already can't do on your own in the form of carb, sugar, that kind of thing. <laughs> Cause I had somebody actually say that, uh, how dare you talk about, uh, improving, um, type, uh, diabetes, but this was a post about type two anyway, but, um, she was saying that type ones need carbs. They absolutely have to have carbs. So I'm like, but if you're dumping in more sugar that you already can't deal with, it's not really making a lot of sense to me. Yeah. You know, I think we're seeing more and more cases um, that that is the traditional wisdom, by the way, that is, I mean, but once again, the traditional wisdom is everybody needs carbs. So certainly a type mm -hmm. one would need carbohydrates. Um, you know, I watched, I, I, I had a really interesting case study where these parents of a type one diabetic and this poor kiddo was struggling. He was six. And so they decided to put him on a ketogenic diet and they were shocked by how much better he did. Like all of a sudden he's running around, he's playing, he's fine. And when you, um, when you're type one diabetic, you may still have to have long acting insulin. And, and so there's different types of insulin, right? Like it, if you eat carbohydrates right away, you're going to take a short acting insulin if you're type one, because it comes up and needs to come down. If you take a long acting insulin, it's kind of a slow release insulin because even protein, when we eat protein, remember we do get mm -hmm. some response. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, the long acting can cover the little bit of protein because normally your body would still produce a little bit of insulin. Um, but going back to this kiddo, so these parents were so excited, like, God, they could not wait to go back to their endocrinologist because his, his glucose was stable. He was happy. He was no longer, you know, before he was up and down and, and the endocrinologist gave, not only gave them a stern talking to, but gave them a card for a therapist because their kid was going to have problems because they weren't letting him eat cupcakes oh. like other kids. Oh my gosh. Oh. So, you know, to answer your question, you know, I, I think it's, I could see situations where it may be beneficial to have some carbohydrates. Like I'm thinking of my, my nephew's nine, he plays really competitive soccer. Mm -hmm. And so for him having some carbohydrates right before he goes into um, like a soccer match, but then they don't dose with insulin. Cause it's like, you're going to have this and you're going to burn it up, you know, but I don't see any reason. Cause we know carbohydrates are not essential. Like Mm -hmm. putting that, but just in case anyone. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So I have seen more and more cases and we don't have clinical trials with carbohydrates, uh, ketogenic carbohydrate, low, very low carbohydrates and type one diabetics that I know of, um, yet, hopefully we'll get some more, 
but all the, the case studies I've seen and the anecdotal studies that I've seen, it works very effectively. They're just like any other human. And as long as they're covered with a little bit of long acting insulin for, for just breaking down protein, you know, the amino acids, they're totally fine. So I'd be curious to see what that person's um, beef was. <laughs> <laughs> I know it, it was, I just found it so incredibly interesting because it was very, it, she was very offended. Number one, that the, the article, it was a repost, but it didn't specifically state that it was talking about type two. Okay. Okay. Whatever. But then she went on a rant about how you, you just, you, it's so dangerous because the type ones just absolutely have to have carbs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, okay, I, I can't find any way to reason that if yeah. you're already not producing insulin, why would you dump more stuff in your body that requires more insulin? It just didn't, you know, and I'm trying to think of any kind of possible reasoning I was missing. <laughs> yeah, you know, I could see potentially maybe if you're, once again, if you're doing like some really, really, really heavy, intense exercise, I'm not sure if your body could keep up via gluconeogenesis. Um, and we're, and we're always trained in health. I don't know if this person was in health, but we're always trained to keep people too high versus too low. Cause you know, people I had in the hospital, they accidentally overdosed a woman with too much insulin and she, you can go into a coma, you know? So I wonder if she was kind of freaking out about that. But, you know, as far as just from a normal, healthy human being, you know, I would imagine you would be just fine as long as you are, you know, you're checking your blood sugars, you're not doing any crazy heavy bout of exercise. So, yeah, that, that just, just kind of like, wow. Okay. It, that just goes to show you though, how much indoctrination, you know, we have and, and how much we believe in the guidelines because we've heard it over and over. You hear it enough, it becomes the truth. And that's what we followed. And I followed that for most of my life only to have horrible, horrible results every time. Sure. I'd lose the weight, big deal. I wasn't healthy. And then I'd gain it all right back because it wasn't sustainable. So it was just kind of like this whole ridiculous thing. And speaking of which, let's go ahead and have a little bit of your health background. Oh, sure. You've, you've dealt with some stuff. <laughs> yeah. You know, my health journey really starts when I was, I was 12. I was diagnosed with um, anorexia nervosa. I was very seriously sick and um, I was almost, almost five feet tall and 57 pounds. So, you know, a less than a half of what I weigh right now. And I'm uh, almost five, seven yeah, I was really sick. So I was, you know, uh, hospitalized, uh, states away from my family for two months, um, 24 hour tube feeding system. And yeah, you know, I was actually given about a 10% chance to survive. And I remember the doctor telling my, my family, um, and of course I wasn't supposed to be, I was kind of like hiding, listening to this conversation. Uh, I wasn't supposed to be there that even if I did survive, you know, there was already going to be permanent, you know, kidney damage, muscle damage, wow. heart damage, um, and that was pretty terrifying, you know, as a young person and, you know, being really stuck though in the throes of anorexia, I, uh, I remember thinking at that moment, even as a 12 year old, like, Oh, thank goodness. Maybe this is almost over. Like, I don't have to suffer anymore. You know, now I say that as an adult and it just like, Oh, it breaks my heart that that was my thought process. But you know, anybody who struggled with a severe eating disorder, like it takes everything. Like it was my entire life. My entire life was controlled by starving myself, restricting, trying to overexercise, I was being relentlessly bullied at school. And this was certainly before we had like, you know, in the internet information and phones and other things. And so it kind of went unnoticed by both of my, my parents mm. until I, you know, got really sick and passed out at school. And so 
so that was hard, you know, and I really had to kind of fight back from that. And, you know, my second, I have three older sisters, second oldest sister was a huge support system and ended up, um, you know, coming home, getting much better. I wanted to play sports. I got cut from the basketball team and my coach told me, um, Hey, there's this running thing. And so I ended up getting into cross country running, just kind of found I had a knack for it and really, really enjoyed it. And, um, you know, ended up doing pretty well, but because the anorexia, I had low bone density and I had a pretty bad stress fracture my junior year. And right before that too, like I had started to gain weight and I was running really well, but then I kind of got caught back up in it. Like, okay, well, if I want a scholarship for college, I've got to be fast. How do you be fast? You be lean. And I remember reading about a vegetarian diet and how that can make you fast and lean and and it worked, you know, I cut out all animal products as a junior in high school and I lost like 10 pounds and I was so fast and oh, I'm gonna, all these scholarship offers coming in. And then I was running, literally running late to class and I felt a shift in my hip and ended up, I had shattered my pubis ramus bone and uh, found out later, you know, at the age of 18, getting a DEXA scan that I had osteoporosis in my spine and osteopenia in my hips. So that was tough, you know, all the scholarship offers were off the table. I did end up walking on to the University of Arkansas and ran really well there for a couple of years, but had another stress fracture. And it just, it took several years to like rebuild my bone density and, you know, kind of work through that and overcome that. But it wasn't really until I lost my own health again, you know, I, I continued to kind of follow the standard American diet. I knew that carbohydrate stability was important and blood sugar stability, but I always assumed as an active person, as an athlete, certainly I need um, carbohydrates and lots of carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. And then in 2019, uh, towards the end, I was training for a marathon and I just experiencing like searing muscle pain. And I've always, since I had anorexia, I had severe anxiety and bouts of depression, but I thought that was normal. Like, oh, it's just, that's just what I'm going to have to deal with. I'm always going to be at war with my body and with food. And so you kind of learn like how to, how to, how to navigate life. I still, still dealing with that. And, you know, here I am though, and I can't even run two miles without going into cold sweats. And so I reached out to a couple of friends, some sports RDs and said, Hey, this is my diet. Like help me. And, Oh, you're only eating 350 grams of carbs. How about you do 400 or 450? Oh, why don't you eat six times a day or seven times a day? And <laughs> you can imagine, I was like, okay. Um, Whoa. it didn't work. It was very bad. And then kind of my come to Jesus moment. It was, um, the very end of October, 2019. And I woke up in just a sharp pain in my legs and my back. So I drove to 7-Eleven, got, you know, 20 pounds of ice, put it in the bathtub. I'm sitting in an ice bath at like 2.30 in the morning. You know, my wife comes in and is like, uh, maybe we should do something different. <laughs> and that was when like, I'm done. I'm not, I'm no longer going to run. I, I can't deal with this. I can't, I can't even navigate life. You know, I'm not sleeping. And so I decided, well, if I'm not, if I'm not going to be running, then why not do a ketogenic diet? I don't like how carbs make me feel. Why not just get that extra fat and protein? And then as I'm researching a ketogenic diet, I came across Sean Baker and I was like, this man is nuts. You know, I literally think I said that out loud, but I was curious because I knew that protein was important, but I don't think I fully appreciated the, the bioavailability of all the different nutrients and protein. That's something we're also not taught in diabetes, uh, in dietetics is how, how profoundly important bioavailability is. I've used the example like spinach, you know, if spinach has six milligrams of iron per cup, but your body can only absorb, you know, 1.7%. That doesn't help you. That'd be like, if I write you a check for a thousand dollars, but I have $17 in my bank account, you're going to be like, <laughs> well, this check's worthless. You know? So I had no idea that although I had been eating protein, you know, I still ate chicken and fish. 
I was eating so many grains and so many carbohydrates that I was anemic. It was binding, you know, all those phytates, all the oxalates, all those lectins, you know, was really preventing me from absorbing all that nutrition. And so, you know, three weeks into, I decided just to follow a fully carnivorous diet, which <laughs> all the dietitians I work with I thought I was totally that, you know, they're there in the morning with their bagels and oatmeal. And I'm here with my <laughs> pound of ground beef, you know, they're like, this is different, you know? Uh, and it's interesting because all the people, you know, when I was eating bagels and juice and cookies, oh, good job, Michelle, you keep up those carbs. And then you come in with ground beef and they're just like, are you sure you're not going to die? Like, oh, the heart is, are you concerned? Have you got your labs checked? Um, there's just such a profound disconnect, you know? And um, yeah. And so that was kind of the turning point for me was I started to, uh, I started to feel better. And my wife actually, after about three weeks on the following a carnivore diet, asked me to sit down and she said, Hey, come here. I want to talk to you about this. And she had not been a fan initially because she was worried that it was too restrictive. And she was like, look, I don't know if I like this or not, but this is the best your anxiety has been in 11 years. Like Aww. I've never seen you so calm. And she was right. Like I wasn't calm and I wasn't hungry and, and I wasn't hurting, but I attributed that. Well, I'm not running. Of course I'm not hurting. But then I kind of got an idea like, well, what if I tried to run again? You know? And of course my wonderful, wonderful partner is like, cool, go, go run for fun. <laughs> you can go. And I was like, what if I try to run an ultra marathon? <laughs> Yeah, it's like, oh, Lord, you know, shout out to all the good partners out there, right? We're putting up with us. But um, yeah, so I contacted Zach Bitter, who's, you know, a low carbohydrate athlete. He holds the current 100 mile world record and said, I got this idea. This is who I am. Do you want to coach me? And he was like, sure, let's give it a go. And so, you know, we, uh, as I was transitioning to running again and my carbs were really low, we kept our volume low. But as I've, you know, climbed up, you know, I've, last three weeks, I've had between 75 and 85 miles of running a week, um, back to back days of three hours, three hours, or four hours, two hours. And I've done really well. And if you told me a year ago, like, you're going to do this on beef and butter, <laughs> I would have told you like, you got something going, but that's not happening. So it really kind of hit home to me, like how wrong we are and how wrong our guidelines are and how much, how health can be restored and relatively quickly. You know, it took me, I don't know, less than a month to get, to start to feel better mentally and physically I've gotten stronger and stronger. Um, and it's just, I guess that was also another factor in deciding to leave the hospital setting is because, you know, if I can restore my own health so quickly, I can't keep watching people suffer and die knowing that there's something else I can do about it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I couldn't even imagine that. Okay, so let's let's reverse a little bit. You were 12 years old when you were diagnosed as being anorexic. Yes. That is crazy to me. I, I well, I mean, I was like 15, but 12. Oh my gosh, that's so young. Do you can can you think of any reason why you went down that path? Like, can you pinpoint what happened? I mean, there's got to be, there's always something that kind of triggers whether we really know what it is or not. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I write a little bit about this in my book, but there's, it was kind of a perfect storm, you know, what was going on in my life. Like, um, I have a very good relationship with both my parents now, but my mom is um, diagnosed bipolar. And mm. at that time was, I mean, there's just, there's a stigma now, right. But think of 20 years ago or, mm -hmm. you know, gosh, now a little more than 20 years ago. Um, 
she wasn't getting the help she needed. And so she unfortunately, you know, would go through bouts of severe depression and being absent and not being there. And she also had eating disorder tendencies. So I'm watching mm. a woman who's, you know, five, four, 95 pounds scream and cry about how fat she is. And at the same time, um, you know, as my mom's struggling, my father, the youngest of four is working a ton just to try to like support the family. So there wasn't a whole lot of, um, adults in the house. And then at school, you know, I was at school, I started struggling, started losing weight and I was getting just relentlessly bullied to the point where it was physical abuse and, you know, threats and all this kind of stuff. And I, at that time also was playing soccer and I had a parent, you know, yell like, Oh, you look so lean and mean. So here I am like, Oh my gosh, I can be lean. You know, I was getting like a little bit of like positive feedback from this. I'm being told at home and you're getting these messages that, you know, fat equals bad and you don't want to be fat. And then I'm being physically bullied. Um, so I think it was just overall kind of that perfect storm, but I hear you, you know, I have a niece who just turned 15 and I think like, my goodness, like she's still young and fun and all this stuff that like when she was 12, I was like, oh, I was so sick, you know, back then. And unfortunately I think by the time, you know, as a 12 year old, I didn't realize like, this is what's happening. It just, this was my reality. Like every day I, you know, I starve myself and I mm -hmm. try to exercise and my life has no value, you know? So, um, you know, it took a lot of, I mean, it's a process as an adult to kind of, you know, work yourself out of that and to, mm -hmm. to hopefully, I mean, that's also one of my missions and why I speak so um, candidly about it is that there are, there are people, you know, there's so many people that are struggling with eating disorders, anorexia, has one of the highest mortality rates of any eating disorder. And as I was uh, doing research for my book, you know, um, it was really sad that the people who died of anorexia, a significant amount wasn't even from medical complications, it was from suicide. Um, mm -hmm. And so I, I hear that and I, you know, I hope anybody watching this or anybody who has a friend or family member knows that there is hope. There is a, there's a beautiful mm -hmm. life. I'm very grateful mm -hmm. for, you know, the coming out the other side and the, but it's, yeah, it's not easy. And it took, it took a lot of work. Yeah. And, and see, I think you kind of mentioned that we don't really talk about that right now. It's not the cool thing. The cool thing now is body positivity. So that's all about it, you know, accepting yourself no matter what size you are, et cetera. And then this anorexia and bulimia and all that, that was so popular back when I was younger, where, you know, they were really putting it out there on the after school specials and stuff like that to make, you know, awareness. Um, it, you just don't really hear that today. It's like, like the eating disorders have kind of gone away, but we know it hasn't. And I, I find that kind of heartbreaking that it, it just kind of goes under the radar. And, you know, those people who do have these issues feel like they're alone again, you know? And, yeah. And thinking and you know even as an older adult and in you know adolescence and adulthood as I would struggle I'd be like oh my gosh I'm so alone <laughs> and then you know I mean all you have to do is hashtag eating disorder recovery or you know on Instagram there's there's literally millions of people yes. that are struggling so you're certainly not alone and I think you know for me the the greatest help that I that I had was um you know people who were one willing to like sit with me offer support you know you not the food police, um, but also, you know, as I, you know, wasn't even until my thirties, just recently until I ate in a way that really aligned with human physiology that I started to actually be able to honor my hunger, actually be able to have, um, you know, food freedom. So that was another huge thing for me. 
Yeah, well, let's talk about food freedom. What exactly does that mean? And I will tell you the first time I experienced that, I was like, there is nothing in this world that tastes good enough to ruin what I feel. Yeah, you know, it's funny, you said that the very first thing I thought of was like, well, if you ask a bunch of dietitians what food freedom means, because there is this, uh, I I hear people say like, there's this, um, they want all foods to fit, you know, all foods can fit, all foods can fit. But unfortunately, I think we have to look at are all foods optimal for not only our body, but for our brain, you know, we know that certain foods have effects on our neurotransmitters in our brain. Um, so I wanted to believe that badly, you know, as an eating disorder person that feels empowering to think like, you know what, I've restricted for so long, mm-hmm. I'm going to be able to eat whatever I want. And I'm going to be able to honor yeah. my health. But unfortunately, I think we really set people up specifically with like binge eating disorder or bulimia. We tell you all foods fit. And so, you know, you want to eat all these high carbohydrate, high sugar foods. Not only is that going to cause a spike in your blood sugar, but that's also going to, you know, um, affect the neurotransmitters in your brain, specifically glutamate. We know when glutamate goes really high, which can happen when you eat lots of processed carbohydrates, it shuts down your body's uh, or your brain's ability to engage in neuroplasticity. So what does that mean? You can't cope with stress. (laughs) So you're learning all these new recovery tools, but you're, you're preventing your body from actually being able to take them and utilize them. I think that's one reason we see such a high relapse rate in, in eating disorders because people are really trying. Once again, mm-hmm. it's not the patient's fault. They're just not following this good advice. And so for me, yep. <laughs> I'm sure you've heard this. Oh, a low carbohydrate diet is so restrictive. I can't tell you I've never been more free. I've never been more free. And it, mm-hmm. um, I think, yeah, I had a moment, um, Gosh, but I guess, well, I guess you should define what is food freedom for me? Food freedom is being able to know that I'm putting food in my body that tastes delicious. I'm excited to eat. I'm happy to eat it. And I can stop when I'm full and I'm not going to and I'm not going to be worried about it. Like food has become fuel. I mean, it used to be mm-hmm. food used to be something that I had to think about, focus on, obsess about every mm-hmm. few hours. Where's, did I pack my granola bar? Um, am I having potatoes or rice? Like you, you, I got caught up on all the nuances. And now it's like, I just, you know, I eat my beef, I eat my liver, we have some lamb, salmon, whatever. And I'm good. My whole day is fueled. I know when I go to bed, I used to go to bed and I used to just, oh, pray, how sore am I going to be tomorrow for my running? And now it's like, you know, I'm still running. So it's not like I don't get sore, but it's not going to be debilitating, right? I, I, I can trust my body to tell me when to eat, when not to eat. Um, and it's just really nice. And I'm also you know, I had a moment, um, we get a fourth a share of a cow. So we get all different cuts. I was grinding up uh, one of the cuts, the tougher cuts. And I looked at it and I was like, oh, this is too lean. It needs more fat. So I went to the freezer to get fat and I stopped and I was like, would I ever have done this in like my eating disorder days? Like this need, like, I didn't even think about it. I was just like, oh, it just needs more fat. Like, it's like, I've become connected. Like food is no longer like calories and all this stuff. It's just what is going to be good for my body? What tastes good? And then it's, it, and I get to move on with my day. I mean, I'm sure people watching this as well as you could say, we wasted thousands of hours worrying about when, what, where, what, all these different things with food, but food now has just become, you know, a means it's no longer yeah. <laughs> or whatever. It's just a small part of your life. And now it's opened up so, so much more. I mean, because of food freedom, I'm going to be able to run longer than I ever have. You know, I, had the courage to change jobs. I'm writing a book. I'm a better partner, wife, you know, me, I'm becoming more me, you know, which is something that I'm, I'm really excited about. I love that you said that because I I hear this often 
about how, you know, when you're properly, you know, have proper nutrition, that you're, you're able to, you know, step outside yourself a little more because uh, everything is working right and, and you're happier, your moods are better, everything just kind of aligns. And then you, you find that you can do these amazing things that you never thought you could do. Like for me, being in front of a camera, that's freaking huge. And that's not something I would have ever, ever, ever done. Matter of fact, I used to run from a camera. So, you know, to deliberately do this is huge. So there's all these things and I hear this daily and it, it, there's something to that. And I think that's amazing. And, and people who don't experience this, I, I feel really sad for them. And, you know, I used to think about food 24 seven. I probably dreamed about it. I woke up couldn't wait to go and have my oatmeal and my banana and my whatever else, you know, my toast, my whole grain toast and all that. And now it's like, eh, whatever. And I don't look at food as, as, as my pleasure, as my entertainment, as my comfort really. And some people find that really sad. My husband for one, because I was such a foodie and did get so much out of it. And now sometimes I'm like, I just don't really feel like eating. Yeah, I just, I, you know, it's like, yeah, it, it, for me too, it's just no longer become like the BL end all is the same mm -hmm. that I just was so hungry. Like, and, and it really controlled a lot of my wife. It's like, like what we did, like if I'm running, I better have carbs right mm -hmm. after mm -hmm. and I'm worthless the rest of the day, or I'm going to be anxious. I'm thinking about it. I'm worried about it where, you know, I've done a couple hour runs. I did a three hour run and um, I needed to do some errands, so I'm not going to get to eat for an hour, but that's okay. You know, cause my body's burning fat. I'm no longer dependent on sugar. Um, and that certainly doesn't mean like, Hey, you know, I love what I eat. I mean, I yeah. love steak. I love my meats. I love things. It's not that I, I don't feel deprived, but it no longer controls you. And I think people, so many people I've talked to, and this is interesting, you know, having worked in a hospital when I worked in Colorado, I worked in oncology. And so, you know, often see people in hospice or at the end of their, their life. And you know, people tell you things like, man, if I could do it over, I would have, I really wish I'd went to school. I really wish I always wanted to be a ballet dancer. I wish I, I kind of wonder like if we could give people just the right nourishment, you know, just enough. Yes. And I mean, anybody who's watching this, like if there is something pulling at you, man, I wish I could start a YouTube or write a blog, you know, you may be surprised when, when you shift how, how your body functions. Like when you have a, a clearer mind, when you have more energy, and that doesn't mean that your life isn't tough. You have crazy responsibilities. Like, you know, you and I can tell you a lot of our lives are, it's not like it's a cakewalk here. Right. <laughs> but it gives you back something you didn't have. Right. And so I think that it gives you a much better shot of achieving what you want to achieve in life. Absolutely. And, and not to be so obsessed and worried about every little detail and food is crazy how it's, it's become so central to everything. I mean, everything. And, you know, people, when they have the reactions, like you said about, oh, that's so restrictive. Yeah, no, not really. Not when you don't care. I mean, I like my food. I, I enjoy my food. And I look forward to, you know, like going out to a steak restaurant and having a special steak, those kind of things. I still do that, but, but it's not this all encompassing thing that just rules my life. And it allows a freedom. Like if, if you have been a food addict like me, I mean, if you're one of these lucky people that are like, I don't know, 0.0001% of the population that can actually truly really moderate. And I do know some of those actually. And it, it's like, you just, you can't do that. You know, there's just, just so many, so few people that can actually do the whole moderation thing. Yeah. And for me, it's, you know, it's, 
when I think about like the time I lost, like people like, oh, it's so restrictive. It's so restrictive. You know what's restrictive? Restrictive is sitting in the corner in tears because you're anxious. It's restrictive is, you know, being so fat. Uh, they, I have patients that are so fat and are muscled, they can't even get up to go to the bathroom. Restrictive mm. is missing your, you know, kids or grandkids wedding. For me, restrictive was, you know, wasting hours as an anxious, you know, in the throes of depression that to me that's restrictive like you can take anything I eat I don't care like having a quality of life to where you can just purely like function you know unfortunately like we're a society now that 70% of the population is overweight or obese 88% has some type of um, blood sugar disability or I'm sorry blood sugar uh, instability like I think we need to start looking like redefining what we think is restrictive because to me like I, I used to tell people because people used to say like, oh, meat is so expensive. I'm like, you know, what's expensive is a shitty life. Like there's nothing more <laughs> pricey than missing out. And I have missed out on opportunities due to severe anxiety and depression I was struggling with and pain. And that's to me is what's expensive. You know, I think we need to start looking, <laughs> redefining what we think is expensive. I love that. That's perfectly said. And, and so true. Okay. So let me check the time here. Yeah, we know. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. Well, let's go ahead and talk just a little bit about the ultra marathon. Like what is your training? Like, when is it? Give us some details. Yeah. So, you know, to, it, to train for an ultra marathon is totally different than anything I've done before. Um, so how we kind of went into it is you want to start your training or this is how I have a coach, Zach's my coach. So you start kind of non-specific training first. And as you get closer to the event, you do more specific training, meaning, um, earlier, like say early winter, I was doing a lot of like short, fast repeats. So, um, you know, still like 40 or 50 miles, but I do like, you know, 10 by hundred, like fast stuff. And for someone who's a long distance runner, running fast is, is hard, you know, ask me to run three hours. I got you ask me to run fast three minutes. I'm like, Oh my God, I'm old, <laughs> you know? So, but for, it was great. And it was also really great for me to see like, wow, I can run fast too on a much lower carbohydrate, you know, diet. So, and then as we've gotten closer, the event is less than two weeks away from recording, November 7th. Um, we've gone into more race specific. So race specific means, hey, it's a long event. You're going to run long. So I would say two of the things I'm, I'm most proud of, um, I had a back-to-back -back day, four-hour run. Um, so it was a, a little over 28 miles I got that morning. Then I have to come back the next morning and run two hours fast. So two hours up-tempo. And so most people, if you're on a marathon, you're going to take a couple of weeks off. You're like, woo, it's done. So I ran more than a marathon. Then I got to come back the next day and hammer it. And that went really well. And that was, um, that was really encouraging for me. And then this past, uh, Thursday, Friday, I had three hours, um, and then next day come back and do the same three hour run. Um, and so that was, that's pretty cool. I mean, you're doing 23, 24 miles coming back the next day and doing the same thing. And, you know, also practicing, and I've kind of alternated practicing between doing those relatively low carbohydrate and then adding little carbohydrates. Cause I will do mm. a little carbs in the race. Mm. And so being able to do through, you know, a three hour run with less than 10 grams of carbohydrates is uh, pretty neat. That's, that's been encouraging for me. And yeah, you know, because of COVID I've had several races, they've all been canceled. So we are going to a very small event out in Las Vegas <laughs> of all places. Wow. Um, and it's a two and a half mile loop course and the goal winner is going to, who can run the most. So I have never run more than 30 miles in my life. It is my goal to run at least 40. Um, Whoa. I can, but I tell, I mean, I can commit to anybody watching that, you know, win, lose or draw, I will continue to move forward. If I have to walk to crawl, like I'm just, 
I'm just, I'm grateful for the opportunity. So we'll, we'll see what I can do. I, I don't know since I've never done it before, but I'm, uh, I'm hopeful. Well, you know, I, that's kind of how I just, it's weird. Cause you know, you put all this effort into this one day, but man, the process has just been, has been affirming and transforming. So I'm, I'm very grateful. That's awesome. So you're feeling good. Everything you yeah. feel awesome. General, I'm so excited I'm, for you. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I had, um, you know, I also shifted jobs. So I have a relatively physical job now too. So it was, I was a little, uh, after running uh, Thursday, Friday, and then I had kind of a more physical day Saturday. I was just like, Oh man. But, um, yeah, you know, when I used to do marathons, uh, and my higher carb days, like I would struggle sleeping that night of a long run. And, um, I've been, <laughs> I've been sleeping, maybe even too much sleeping a lot. So yeah, in general, and now my training is about to decrease my, up until my run, my mm-hmm. longest um, run will be an hour and a half. So um, I'm going to start to, you know, relax, feel good. I guess that's, that's a, the plan to, to kind of decrease your training. So you're ready to go, but yeah, in general, I, I, it's been a really, really good cycle. That's really cool. I'm so excited for you. I, I, I know you're going to kill it. I, I'm anxious to, to hear the results. <laughs> Crawl, yeah. crawl if you have yeah, to. Not that last hour, maybe, you know. <laughs> hey, whatever <laughs> it takes. Okay. So tell us what you're doing now. You, you oh, left sure. the dietitian profession and what are you doing now? So when I left, as my hours decreased, you know, I started really focusing on writing the book. I put a lot of energy into that, but I was like, what am I going to do career wise? And I really, as, um, you know, we had, we got, um, beef from our cow share, we got a grinder from Amazon. So I was grinding cuts of meat and I just felt really connected to the animal. I was like, this is cool. This feel, it, it felt really good. So I started to look into to butchery. Like, could I, could I do something in that, um, that field? And, you know, unfortunately because of COVID there weren't a whole lot of places hiring and I have no experience, you know, I'm all in healthcare, but there was a small company in Portland called Scratch Meats and they were just looking for someone, you know, entry level, come in. Um, it was fun. You know, I went in dressed all business-like, <laughs> very different than everyone else in there was dressed, but, um, what they do is, so they, they source from eight different local farms, you know, all grass fed. And then we, you know, we get big cuts of animals, you break it down and they're, they're making, they make sausages. They make either, you know, pork, beef, blends of sausages, just using the meat and, and spices. They don't use any sugars or fruits or anything. Well, they use some fruits, I guess, and some, and then we also sell like livers and hearts. Like when, you know, you cut them out, you bag them. And so it's just a, a small company that's kind of, um, I, will, I mean, our owner is a wonderful young guy and he's committed to providing like animal nutrition to our community. Like he believes in it. It's, you know, it's something that he grew up eating and he thinks there's a, there's a lot of power to supporting your farmers and then bringing it into the community. So I've just, there's um, six of us in the actual kind of working, breaking stuff down. And then we, they have 14 farmers markets they go to. Uh, I get to do that sometimes as well, but it's kind of night and day from, you know, it's like a going from healthcare to helping break down animals, make sausages and sell, you know, meat. But, um, but I, it's, it's been wonderful. And it's kind of my hope that my next step would be um, a little bit more specific in, in butchery, but yeah, I love, this is a great team and this is um, it's been, it's been something I'm enjoying doing for sure. That's awesome. And it's so different. You just, it, is so different. I, it cracks me up. I love it. I think it's great. And, and it, it makes you feel good. So that's even better. Yeah. But in, oh, sorry. I was just gonna say, what's really interesting too, is like when I was in healthcare, um, I mean, I worked in the last hospital I was in for like a year and, you know, I feel like 
and I, especially with, with COVID, it's just been, it's been hard. I mean, people are tired. Like you said, dietitians, like we're starting to, we don't necessarily have faith in what we're doing. Everybody that I work with right now, they love what they're doing. They, they believe in it. They're, they're passionate about it. And it really is a very different working environment too. Like mm-hmm. that is something, you know, night and day from what I had, you know, kind of this disconnect and everyone's sick and what am I doing with my life to like, yeah, I'm providing for the little community and this is great. And we're honoring the animal and, you know, so it's been really cool. That's great. I love that. Okay. While you're in the midst of all this, you're writing a book. Tell us a little bit about the book. What's, what's the name? When do you think it's going to come out and what is going to be in it? <laughs> I was going to say, depending on what podcast you watch, I feel like I'm, <laughs> they keep telling me like, stop telling an exact date. So we were really hoping for fall of 2020. Mm-hmm. And then it was like, when in 2020, um, it will definitely be end of 2020, beginning of 2021, because it's mostly done. It's going to be called the dietitian's dilemma because that was that's kind of my story. This is what I was presented with. I was like, oh my gosh, I have this information that transformed my life. Um, but I'm still have to practice this. And then also what about the nuances are, can you, can some people tolerate plants? Can some people tolerate carbohydrates? What about saturated fat? So I really wanted to present, um, you know, my, my history and my story, but also specific diseases that I thought I could speak really well about. So the book has my story and I'm really, I'm really grateful. Uh, Nevada gray and Instagram at the paleo pharmacist is going to be writing the foreword. Um, and then we are going to go into diabetes, uh, eating disorders, mental disorders, mm. including, um, major depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, uh, sarcopenia, which is, you know, when you have um, your muscle wasting, which is a big problem in our elderly population and heart disease. Then we have a whole chapter on where these crazy nutrition guidelines came from plants versus animals getting started. And, um, I'll give a little bit about what I do to run. I've gotten hit up a lot about that. So we'll go ahead and put some <laughs> of that in the book. And then of course they have testimonies from, you know, some incredible people, which I'm very excited about, uh, including yourself. So that's cool. Uh, yeah. And so I'm, I'm really excited about this because it was my goal that, you know, people who are curious to have, not just to have a dietitian say like, Hey, you know what, here's an option. I'm going to ask a lot of questions in the book. Like, does this make sense? What do you think? You know, because I'm not going to say you should do this, do this, do this. But I think people just, you know, getting people to open their minds, critical think a little bit, starting to lose that in society a little bit. Uh, um, you think? <laughs> and just offer, offer a solution. You know, my um, incredible girl who, who helped Diana Rogers and a lot of her work, her name is uh, Meg Chatham. And she is helping me um, with some of the editing. And, you know, she's like, write the book that we needed. You know, when we were struggling, you know, with, with eating disorder, when people are struggling with diabetes and they have these dietitians telling them to eat these carbohydrates, when people are scared that they're going to die of a heart attack if they eat a keto diet, like let's write the book to, because I want, once again, I want it to be as easy to read as possible, but I also have over 180 clinical trials cited just for all the people that are like, where's the evidence? There's a lot of evidence. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> yeah. And we've got great, I'm so grateful for, um, you know, doctors like Dr. Robert Silas, uh, Tony uh, Hamp- uh, Hampton, um, we're going to feature, you know, some athletes like Zach, um, you know, um, why am I blanking out, you know, other dietitians, other health coaches, you know, Kate, health coach Kate is, mm-hmm. is our incredible graphics. And so it's really a beautiful, to me, collaborative effort. I actually thought when I was running the other day, um, 
I feel so grateful that when I ask people for their testimonies and I ask people for their support and can you help me? Nobody said like, you know what? I want to read the book first. Like I had to make sure you know what you're talking about first. Like everybody was like, yeah, let's go. Let's do this. Because, you know, most people in this community, this carnivore, this ketogenic, this low carb community are just so grateful. We've got our health back. We just want to like spread the message, you know? Yes. And so <laughs> it is my ultimate hope that, um, and it doesn't matter where you're at. It, it, if you are, you know, you're struggling, you're obese, you're addicted to sugar, or you're just like, you know, I don't feel very good. I'm curious. You know, there's something for everybody in this book. So I am, uh, I'm excited. It's coming. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, and I'm going to have a little bit more time, you know, I, as soon as this race is over, I'm going to have a little bit more downtime. So we're going to really pedal to the metal here. That's awesome. So where will it be available? Are it's going to be, so that will, um, I will have my own website within the next month. Um, and we're going to, we're working on Nevada and I right now, pre-order, but everyone will be able to get it on Amazon. Um, and then I'll probably have a connection through my website, but I know most people like, you know, it's just that easy click put in cart. So that'll be the number one spot it'll be. And it'll be unavailable in an ebook as well. Very cool. I'm so excited about it. I can't wait. There, there are a couple of books I'm waiting on. So, and this is one of them. So yay, we have something to look forward to. Okay. Um, is there any last minute things you want to say, any advice you want to give before we go? Gosh, you know, I would say, you know, don't be afraid to ask questions, to be curious. You know, I sometimes have people email me or direct message me on Instagram, like, Hey, I hate to bother you or Hey, you're like, yeah, you know, you're not bothering me. I, I love, you know, as long as I have time, I am happy to, to help, to answer questions. Um, you know, bring an open mind, bring curiosity and yeah, that, that would be it. I love it. Great. Well, y'all, while you're here, subscribe to my channel, go follow Michelle and wait for her book. I'm going to have all her information below and I will update when her book does come out. So super excited about that. And good luck with your marathon. I can't wait to hear about that. Thank you. I will definitely let you know. <laughs> Bye, Michelle. You have a wonderful day. All right. See you later.